Chapter Twenty Three of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three In My Office. It was with strange reluctance I opened the paper next morning. Though I had no reason for apprehending that my adventure of the day before had been shared by any one likely to give information in regard to it, the consciousness of holding an important secret is so akin to the consciousness of guilt, I could not help dreading some reference to the same in the sheet I now unfolded. I wished to be the first to tell Miss Meredith of the new direction in which suspicion was pointing and experienced great relief when upon consulting the columns usually devoted to the all-engrossing topic of the gillespie poisoning case i came upon a direct intimation of the necessity now universally felt of holding alfred accountable for his father's death as the only one of the three who had shown himself unable to explain away the circumstantial evidence raised against him this expression of opinion on the part of the press had been anticipated too long by miss meredith for it to prove a shock to her i therefore did not commit myself to an early interview but went at once to my office where important business awaited me i was in the midst of a law paper when i was warned by a certain nervous perturbation fast becoming too common with me that some one had been admitted to my inner office and now stood before me looking up i saw her she wore a thick veil and was clad in a long cloak which completely enveloped her but there was no mistaking the outlines of the figure which had dwelt in my mind and heart ever since that fateful night of our first meeting or the half frightened half eager attitude with which she awaited my invitation to enter agitated by her presence which was totally unexpected in that place i rose and with all the apparent calmness the situation demanded, I welcomed her in and shut the door behind her. When I turned back it was to meet her face to face. She had taken off her veil and loosened her cloak at the neck, and as the latter fell apart I saw that the left hand clutched a newspaper. I no longer doubted the purpose of her visit. She had seen the article I have just quoted, and was more moved by it than I had expected. "'You must pardon this intrusion,' she began, ignoring the chair I had set before her. "'I have seen, learned something which grieves, alarms me. "'You are my lawyer. More than that, my friend. I have no other. "'So I have come.' Here she sank into a chair, first drooping her head, then looking up piteously. I tried to give her the support she asked for. Concealing the effect of her emotion upon me, I told her that she could find no truer friend, or one who comprehended her more intuitively. Then, with a gesture towards the paper, I remarked, "'You are frightened at the impatience of the public. You need not be, Miss Meredith. There are always certain hot-headed people who advocate rash methods, and demand any bone to gnaw rather than not gnaw at all. The police are more circumspect.' they are not going to arrest any one of your cousins without evidence strong enough to warrant such extreme measures. Do not worry about Alfred Gillespie. Tomorrow it will not be his name, but— With a leap she was on her feet. Whose? she cried, meeting my astonished gaze with such an agony of appeal in her great tear-dry eyes that I drew back appalled. It was not Alfred, then, she loved. 
was it the handsome george after all or could it be no it could not be that all his youth all this beauty nay this embodiment of truest passion and self-forgetting devotion had fixed itself upon the unhappy man whom i had just decided to be unworthy of any woman's regard aghast at the prospect i plunged on wildly desperately but with a certain restraint merciful to her if no relief to me george too seems innocent leighton only yes it was he i saw it as the name passed my lips saw it even before she gave utterance to the low cry with which she fell at my feet in an attitude of entreaty oh she murmured don't say it i cannot bear it yet no schooling has made me ready it is unheard of impossible he is so good so kind so full of lofty thoughts and generous impulses i would sooner suspect myself and yet oh mr uthwaite pity me every support is gone everything in which i trusted or held to if he is the base the despicable wretch they say where shall i seek for goodness trustworthiness and truth i had no heart to answer so it was upon the plainest least accomplished and to all appearance least responsive as well as least responsible of mr gillespie's three sons she had fixed her affections and lavished the warm emotions of her passionate young life why had i not guessed it why had i let george's handsome figure and alfred's lazy graces blind me to the fact that woman chooses through her imagination and that if out of a half-dozen suitors she encounters one she does not thoroughly understand he is sure to be the one to strike her untutored fancy alas for her when as in this case this lack of mutual understanding is founded on the impossibility of a pure mind comprehending the hidden life of one who puts no restriction upon the worst side of his nature these thoughts were instantaneous but they had made a dividing line in my life henceforth this woman in all her alluring beauty was in a way sacred to me like a child we find astray raising her from the appealing posture into which she had sunk i assured her with as much gentleness as my own nature rebellion would allow you have not trusted him yourself or you would let no newspaper report drive you here for solace she cringed the blow had told but she struggled on with a feverish desire to convince herself if not me of the worth of him she loved so passionately i know it was my weakness or his misfortune he had given me no cause no real cause his eccentricities my uncle's impatience with them my own difficulty in understanding them little things mr uthwaite nothing deep nothing convincing i cannot explain shadows memories so slight they vanish while i seek them i would have given worlds not to have been shaken in my faith not to have included him for a minute in the accusation of that phrase one of my sons but i am over-conscientious and because the one i trusted lived by had not been exonerated by his father i did not dare to separate him from the rest in the doubts his father's accusation had raised it would have been unjust to them to the two who cared most for me the two here her voice trailed off in silence only to rise in the sudden demand 
What has occasioned this change in public opinion? What have the police discovered? What have you discovered? That he should now be singled out, he amongst whom nothing was found at the inquest, who has a child. Yet who allows himself to lead a double life? I said this with a purpose. I knew what its effect must be upon so pure a soul, and I was not surprised at the emotion she displayed. Yet there was something in her manner as she pressed her two hands together which suggested the presence of a different feeling from the one I had expected to rouse, in launching this poisoned arrow, and hesitating with new doubt I went falteringly on. Some men show a very different face in their homes and before their friends than in haunts where your pure imagination cannot follow them. The life lived under your eye is not the one really led by the melancholy being you have watched with such sympathetic interest. She did not seem to follow me. What do you mean? Her indignation was so strong that she leapt to her feet and eyed me with a manifest sense of outrage. You speak as if you meant something I should not hear. He, Claire's father. It was a difficult task. Surely my lines had fallen in untoward places. But there was no doubt about my duty. If her fresh, unspoiled heart had made its home in a nest of serpents, it was well she should know her mistake before the shame of the discovery should overwhelm her. Turning aside, so that I should not seem to spy upon her agitation, I answered her as such questions should be answered, with the truth. Miss Meredith, said I, when I undertook to sift this matter, and if possible bring to light some fact capable of settling the doubt that is wearing away your life, I hope to relieve your heart and restore your faith in the one cousin most congenial to you. That I have failed in this and find myself called upon to inflict suffering rather than to bring peace to your agitated heart is a source of regret to myself which you can never measure. But it cannot be helped. I dare not keep back the truth. Leighton Gillespie is unworthy of your regard, Miss Meredith, not only because he lies under suspicion of having committed the worst sin in the calendar, but because he has deceived you as to the state of his own affections. He— Wait! Her voice was peremptory. Her manner noble. I wish to say right here, Mr. Uthwaite, that Leighton Gillespie has never deceived me in this regard. I have cared for him because, because I could not help it. But he has never led me into doing so by any show of peculiar interest in myself. George has courted me, and Alfred nearly has, but not Leighton. Yet to him my whole heart went out, and if it is a shame to own it, I must endure that shame rather than injure his cause by leaving you under the influence of a prejudice which has no foundation in fact. Before the generosity of this self-betrayal I bowed my head. Her beauty, warm and glowing as it was at this moment of self-abandonment, did not impress me so much as the mingled candor and pride with which she exonerated this man from the one fault of which she knew him to be innocent. It gave me a new respect for her, and a shade more of forbearance for him, so that my voice softened as I replied, Well, well, we will not charge him with deliberate falsehood towards you, only with the madness that leads a man to sacrifice honor and reputation to the fancied charms of an irresponsible woman. 
He is under a spell, Miss Meredith, which I will not attempt to name. The object of it I have myself seen, and it was from her hand, possibly without her understanding the purpose for which he wanted it, as she has no appearance of being a really wicked woman, that he obtained the poison which did such deadly work in your uncle's house. The worst was said, and the silence that followed was one never to be forgotten by her or me. When it was broken, it was by hope, and in words which came in such starts and with such pauses, I could only guess their meaning through my identification with her shame and grief. Calumny! It cannot be! So good, so thoughtful in his bringing up of Clare! That day he pulled her aside lest she should stumble against the little boy with the broken arm. It is a dream, a horrible dream! He depraved! He a buyer of poison? No! no no not he but the evil spirit that sometimes possesses him leighton gillespie in his true hours is a man to confide in to regard with honour to 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 i no longer made an effort to listen she was not addressing me but her own soul with which for the moment she stood apart in the great loneliness which an overwhelming catastrophe creates she did not even remember my presence, and I did not dare recall it to her. I simply let her lose herself in her own grief, while I fought my own battle, and, as I hope, won my own victory. But this could not last. She suddenly awoke to the nearness of listening ears, and flushing deeply, ceased the broken flow of words which had so worn upon my heart, and regaining some of her lost composure, forcibly declared, you are an honest man, Mr. Uthwaite, and I am told a reliable lawyer. You have too much feeling and judgment to malign a man already laboring under the accusation which unites this whole family in one cloud of suspicion. Tell me, then, do you positively know Leighton to have done what you say? Alas! was my short but suggestive reply. Instantly she ceased to struggle and with a calmness hardly to be expected from her after such a display of feeling, she surveyed me earnestly for a moment, then said, Tell me the whole story. I have a reason for hearing it, a reason which you would approve. Let me hear what you learned, what you saw. It is not to be found in the papers. I have only found there a general allusion to him calculated to prepare the mind for some great disclosure to-morrow and her hand tightened upon the sheet which I now discovered to be the one morning journal I had failed to see. You will pay no attention to my feelings. I have none. We are sitting in court. Let me hear. Respecting her emotion, respecting the attitude in which she had placed me, I did as she requested. With all the succinctness possible, I told her how I had been led to go to Mother Mary's and what I had discovered there. Then I related what we had learned from Rosenthal. The narrative was long and gave me ample opportunity for studying its effect upon her. But she made no betrayal of her feelings. Perhaps, as she had said, she had none at this moment. With her hand clenched on her knee, she sat listening so intently that all her other faculties seemed to have been suspended for this purpose. Only as I approached the end, I noticed that the gray shadow which had hung over her from the first 
had deepened to a pall beneath which the last vestige of her abounding youth had vanished. My own heart grew heavy as the gladness left hers, and I was nearly as desolate as she when I made this final remark. That is all, Miss Meredith. I as truly believe that Leighton Gillespie bought the bottle of poison from the girl he called Millefleur, as if I had seen him laying the money down before her. But Rosenthal's admissions you must take at your own valuation. He says he saw your uncle, with backward looks and signs of secret fear and disturbance, pour out something from a glass onto the grass plot underneath his open window. Was it the wine which had been given him by Leighton? and did he do this because of the drug he had detected in it? A drug, alas, so fatal it was not necessary for him to drink the full glass in order to succumb to it. That is a question you must answer in your mind from the knowledge you have of your uncle and his family. There was a hope held out in this last phrase which I expected to see her embrace, but she did not. On the contrary, her depression remained unchanged, and she said, I knew my uncle well. He was a just man, and in times of great danger, a cool one. He would never have written for my eyes those four words, one of my sons, unless some new fact had added certainty to his former conviction. The drug was in the wine handed him by Leighton. We must accept that fact whatever it may cost us. Her calmness amazed me. For the last few minutes she seemed upborne by some secret thought I could neither fathom nor understand. But suddenly her old horror returned, with the recurrence of some old memory. Then it was his hand that stole towards my uncle's glass in the dark, she cried. That murderous, creeping hand, the vision of which has haunted me night and day since I heard it. Oh, horrible, horrible! What a curse to fall upon a man! It is the work of the arch-fiend. Poor Leighton, poor Leighton, she cried in her agony. Bowing her head, she sobbed bitterly, while I surveyed her in amazement. I did not understand her. She seemed to be weeping for Leighton, not for herself. At all events, she did not show the repulsion I expected from her in face of such monstrous depravity. Was the fascination he exerted over her so great that she could not weigh, at their proper value, characteristics so entirely evil? It did not seem possible. Yet there she sat mourning for him, instead of crushing the very thought of him out of her heart. I think I comprehend it all now, she finally whispered, half to herself and half to me. I have had the thought before. It has come when that bewildering look of mad uneasiness has crossed his face, and he has left us to be gone days, sometimes weeks, without notice or explanation. It is a strange idea, a secret, almost an uncanny one, but it is the only one that can explain a crime for which one and all of my cousins seem to lack the inherent baseness. Dare I breathe it to you? It may be the saving of Leighton, if true." God knows it is my only excuse for clinging to him still. And do you cling to him still? I asked, knowing what her answer would be, but hoping against hope. The look she gave recalled all her old beauty. Would that I might have been the cause of it, or that a woman would love where her heart must encounter disgrace and bitter suffering. 
I cannot help doing so, she murmured. He will soon need my aid, if not my comfort, for I know what those horrible contradictions mean. I understand them, understand him, and even the revolting crime of which he may have been guilty. Hypocrisy does not explain it. Depravity does not explain it. His good acts are too real, the nobility of his nature too unmistakable. Disease alone can account for it. He is the victim of double consciousness, and he leads two lives, your own expression, because the two hemispheres of his brain do not act in unison. Wickedness is not his normal condition. His normal condition is a noble one. By nature he is a God-fearing man, devoted to good works and high thoughts. When he goes astray it is because the balance of his faculties has been disturbed. This is no new thing to the psychologist. You yourself have heard of men so afflicted. Leighton Gillespie is one. Was her own brain turned by her terror, anxiety, and wonder? Surely she was either mad or playing with my common sense. But the calm dignity of her manner proved that she had advanced this astonishing, this fantastic explanation of Leighton Gillespie's contradictory actions in good faith. Despair seized me at this proof of his tenacious hold upon her, and I could not quite restrain a touch of irony. "'You would make him out a sort of Jekyll and Hyde,' I ventured. "'Alas, I fear the courts do not take into account the theories of the romancer in their judgment of criminals.' The sarcasm passed unheeded. Growing more and more beautiful as her earnestness increased, she said with simple confidence, "'Talk to Dr. Bennett. He has known my cousin almost from his birth. Ask what these sudden changes mean in a man whose primal instincts have always been good. Ask why this devoted father, this kind son, suddenly loses himself. It may be at table, it may be while sitting with his own child by the fire, and deaf to all remonstrance, blind to the most touching appeals of those about him, goes suddenly out and does not come back till he can be himself again in the presence of his family, and under the eye of his friends. Previous to that awful morning when my uncle unsealed to my eyes the horrible secret that rested like a cloud over the household, I used to give another explanation to these varying moods, and see in them a promise of more personal hopes and an augury of my own future happiness. So easy is it for a woman to deceive herself when she worships a man without fully comprehending him. I thought— here her calm candor grew almost heroic in the effort she made to impress me with the reasons she cherished for her belief. I thought he was jealous of George, or angry with Alfred, and was driven away by his fear of self-betrayal, or his dread of being led into making unworthy reprisals. But now I see that it was his abnormal nature which had come into play, a nature of which he may be ignorant when in full health or for the manifestations of which he may be no more responsible than we are, for the vagaries we commit in dreams. "'You have not read the latest discoveries in hypnotism,' I rejoined. "'A man can be driven into no act for which he lacks the natural instinct. But I do not want to be cruel, Miss Meredith. I am too sincere in my desire to save you unnecessary pain and heartache. Since you wish it, I will see Dr. Bennett.' But—my smile seemed to unnerve her. 
but you do not think he will agree with me in my interpretation of this crime and Leighton's connection with it. I do not, Miss Meredith. Then, she cried with a high look and a gleam of quiet resolve that made me realize how small was my influence in face of her overpowering love for this man. God's will be done. I shall believe in what I have said till he whom I have trusted is proved the heinous malefactor you consider him. When the last hour comes, I perish, killed by the greatest shame that can overwhelm a woman. To love one who has never sought your affection may cause the cheek to burn and the heart to recoil upon itself. But to have given all one's youth and the most cherished impulses of the heart to a man who is no more than a whited sepulchre of deceit and revolting crime, that would be to sap life at its spring and tear up the heart by its roots. Oh, Mr. Uthwaite, forgetting all womanly delicacy, forgetting everything but your forbearance and the confidence with which you inspire me, I have poured out my soul before you. Prove to me that this man is good, moral in his instincts, I mean, except when the evil spirit has a grip upon him, and I will bless you as the saviour of my self-respect. But if you cannot— Here she turned pale and tottered. Then do not expect me to survive. I, I could not. The alternative was a bitter one. I did not see at that moment how she could expect, still less how I could perform such a miracle. But I could not see her depart without some gleam of encouragement, and so I told her that if the tide turned so as to free Alfred from suspicion, and land Leighton in the courts, I would embrace the opportunity thus offered to do all that lay in my power, to prove her theory a true one. And with this understanding between us, she went away, leaving me to take up, with what courage I could, my own broken and disjointed life. End of chapter 23